Hi everyone, it's your host Mandy Bynum. Welcome to another episode of Equality Matters from the Race Equality Project. My guest today, I had so much fun talking to her. I always do, but today especially was was really awesome and hilarious. Um, my guest is Lily Zhang. She's an author, a thought leader, an advisor, and an equity consultant. Uh, she's been featured in Forbes, CNBC, Entrepreneur, and Fairy Godboss. She is quite literally a no-nonsense consultant. Uh, she works with organizations that recognize the time and the commitment needed to actually do diversity, equity, and inclusion the right way. And she helps them turn ambiguous goals into a reality. Lily's one of those people I look to for sanity checks on the regular. Uh, and frankly, she puts me in my place around equity, diversity, and inclusion all the time, and I so much appreciate it. Uh, it's so hard to find that. I talked to Lily about her career as an independent consultant, as an entrepreneur, her book, The Ethical Sellout, which I highly recommend. I've listened to it twice, and every time I do it, it inspires me to continue doing what I'm doing. We talk about how, as a community of, of equity evangelists, how we work through the hard choices of the kind of work we take, um, who we decide to surround ourselves with, and how her work, especially, has changed within the last year. Y'all, equity and inclusion as a profession and practices is really complicated. It's messy, it's emotionally taxing, but equally rewarding and meaningful. And, and Lily is honestly one of the most well-rounded DEI practitioners I've met. She's had experience in both academia and the Silicon Valley tech scene. She's written books, she's developed training, she's helped companies change their full, full people systems and processes. And she's absolutely hilarious and doesn't take herself too seriously because that's really what this work entails. It's a funny business. So if you're looking to hire a DEI consultant for your company, if you're thinking about making a jump from your current position to a more full-time equity and inclusion position, or if you're curious about how people like Lily make sustainable change in corporate America, this episode's for you. I hope you enjoy. Um, yeah, tell me how you've been. You said you're hanging in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a time. It's just been stressful. Work is a lot. World is a lot. Life sucks. You know, <laughs> Bay Area is all on lockdown. So, you know, we're, we're you know, doing the best we can and I'm doing okay. Good. All things considered, I'm doing okay. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Um, how is work? What's that, what's that been like in the last like month or so for you? Oh man. Um, where do I start with that? Um, good. Okay. Asterisk. There's a lot of it. Um, there's definitely a lot of work. I think a lot of companies are, and I'm glad to see this. There's still a lot of momentum, I think around this summer. And so a lot of companies are still looking for help, uh, fixing big DEI issues, which is good. Um, I'm starting to see the same problem, which we had, you know, what feels like years ago where companies just want really quick things to shut people up. And so I'm getting flooded with requests for honestly work that I don't think is going to make an impact and people want, like I had the other person the other day um, 
one one person reached out to me asking for like Lily, we want a generic DNI training, and I was like, what does that mean? And then she's she was just like, we want you to come in and talk about uh, DNI, and I was like, literally, what does that mean? And she was like, our employees want someone to come in and talk about DNI, so you should come in and uh, talk about the diversity things to them. And like, literally, I like pretty much hung up on the spot. I was just like, what is this? Like, literally, like, nobody knows what they want. Like, it's, it's a, it's a problem. Um, And I'm, I'm having to, I, I told my admin to do some vetting, which like saves me the effort of like having these sorts of conversations. But it's tough, because I think the industry is saturated right now with a ridiculous amount of demand. Like every DNI practitioner I know in the Bay Area is just swamped. Yep. Every firm that I know is like hiring out the wazoo and there's, you know, tons of junior talent coming in and, you know, we're having challenges with managing new talent and doing quality control and trying to set some standards for DE&I work, especially when clients have absolutely no standards and they'll take any garbage you know, that, that looks like it's diversity work. So it's a, it's a messy time in the industry. I think, you know, there are lots of positives, but also it's challenging in a way that I don't think it's been in the past. Yeah. And to back up a little bit, um, we, we met in, was it 2018, 2018? Something like that, that. probably. Um, And it was for a panel. And um, I think it was uh, like some sort of marketing company hosted the panel at my company. Was that Antello? Yes. Doing the panel with... Yeah, and Lily Jampol was on that panel, right? Yes, Duck to Lily. Um, And I love how you both spell your name with one L. It's important. Yes, that's that's the best spelling yes. actually. And and I remember being in that conversation and you you and the other Lily had both come from academia and had been had been in this space for a lot longer than I had. I had just come just transferred over from my head of sales position. Um but I feel like the questions we were answering then I still get today. Mm-hmm. And meaning yeah. like um both questions from individual contributors, like what if they only hired me because I'm the token brown person and like always my favorite question. I remember that question. Yeah. Like what are next steps? Like the whitest of white questions of all time. What is something that we can do immediately to make everything better? (laughs) Sit down and be quiet. That's a good step. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, like I know that work has probably changed in a lot of ways this year. But like from the beginning of when you published your first book, which is, um, don't tell me, I'm going to get it. <laughs> I can't see it. I remember the cover. Gender, it's gender in the workplace. Is, but it's ambiguity. In the ambiguity. Workplace. I was missing that one word. You were really close. Um, I was going to say gender expression. Damn it. But anyway, so that's- Okay, that's relevant too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when your that book had come out. Um, and like, what, tell me about what, what the last two years have been like the journey for you. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, man, okay. Focusing on that point in time, um, I'll, I'll be really vulnerable. It's really hard to break into the DEI field. I feel like people in this industry, since the industry doesn't have quality control, a big issue, it's very (laughs) reputation based. Yes. Um, and so you get business if you have business and Uh 
if you don't have business, you don't get business because nobody wants to hire a DEI practitioner that no one's heard of. Right. And so for new practitioners starting out, it's, it's this really tough situation where even if you can do good work, no one takes a chance on you. And so I was at that point in time, really, really, really strongly debating joining a larger DE&I firm just to get experience. Mm. Um, so I'm talking like paradigm. I was looking at ready set. I took a look at awaken, mm -hmm. um, like, you know, the, the, the firm's doing good work. Um, and I chose at the time to not do that and to go solo. Cause I thought I had a good approach that people would like, but it was awful and hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and I ended up doing, I think really good work for way too little. I was undercharging to make up for the fact that like, I didn't have a name for myself. And it was a rough time as a starting practitioner. I was, you know, still making LinkedIn posts. I was mostly shouting into the void um, and trying to do really good work for my clients, but not really earning much. And I was resisting the pull of the industry. At, at that point in the industry, um, most money was made in like one-off workshops. Um, you would come in, do a workshop, and you would get... You, you would be able to do that efficiently by having a cookie cutter workshop model that you could effectively do for every single client. Mm -hmm. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. That was the model at Stanford um, where I was working before mm -hmm. I quit and started my own thing. And I hated it. Mm -hmm. um, it just wasn't for me. I felt like my soul was, you know, getting sucked out of my body every single time I did a DEI workshop. Um, I didn't really believe the things I was saying. I felt like I was doing like not even 101 content. I was like, race is important. Gender exists. Like it was awful. I felt uh -huh. so bad. Uh -huh. um, and that's the stuff that people wanted. And that's the stuff that people were willing to pay for. And so I think, you know, talk about, uh, talk about the ethical sellout. Yes. Um, oh, we'll you get know, there. That, that, that was my experience at that point in time. I was compromising every day to try to, you know, make a name for myself, build a reputation, make enough money to survive, do work that didn't make me feel like shit. Um, and I don't know if I found the right balance. I just kind of did it until I was able to stop doing it. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to be in the position that I am now to be able to do work that I genuinely like doing and to write about things that I genuinely care about writing about and to have people like listening to me and, and taking me seriously and bringing me in to work on the important stuff. Yeah. And I think the, the reason well, I didn't I, start that way, I bet. And I, I think the reason I've always gravitated towards you is because I think we share that like deep sense of need for integrity. Um, and I think for me personally, it may just be like my lack of patience and uh, my patience for ignorance and like having a problem with how complex of thinking I'm the smartest person in the room and like, why don't you get this? Um, but I'm also totally with you. I have that problem. <laughs> um, and that's why like those basic things are, are so frustrating for me. And I've had to be the person on the phone to be like, we're going to have 50 white male VPs in a room. And like, I need to hit them with something. Can you help me do that? And, mm -hmm. and part of it's like, I want to, if I'm going to have budget, I want to give it to you as the company because you do good work, but also like, I want to start a relationship with you. And I like, they won't listen to me. Like you could literally say the right. same words that I will say, but they won't listen to me. Um, right. And I'm curious to know, like over the, the last two years, um, or let's actually go back. Cause I want to come back to that. Um, but I want to go before that 
and talk about how you gravitated to doing this work full time. Sure. Um, so this is this is when I started at Stanford, mm. um, and it felt like the way to reconcile my need to do social good. Um, using the experience that I have that didn't involve grassroots organizing. I was really burned out from grassroots work. Mm. Um, and so if I'm being very honest, I will say I gravitated towards DE&I because it felt safe mm. and I needed stability at a rough point in my life. Um, I was super burned out. I was still sort of healing from, you know, uh, action involving getting arrested. And it was rough for me. And I think... At that point in time, I was just thinking, look, I need something where I still feel like I'm doing good, where I can use what I know about organizations and organizational sociology and social psychology, which I got my degrees in, mm -hmm. um, to do good. And IO psychology was one option, but you know, I didn't want to spend a long time within corporate. And so I had already spent a lot of time with Stanford and I said, oh, higher ed's great. Um, famous last words. but. <laughs> Higher ed's great. And I joined Stanford thinking that, you know, it would be a walk in the park and really fulfilling and really interesting. And it didn't end up being that. Um, but it gave me the stability that I needed at a rough point in my life. And, you know, eventually I got to the point where I felt gathered enough to start getting impatient with them. Mm -hmm. And once that, you know, hit its point, I said, great, I'm out of here. And yeah. I left. And what was your role there when you started? I was a... Geez, I had a weird title. Um, something involving diversity, equity, and inclusion and design thinking. Uh -huh. okay. It was weird. It was like a weird hybrid role. Um, I, I was basically working for one of their diversity programs at Stanford within student affairs. Mm. Um, and I was collaborating with the D school um, to do some work to reimagine diversity education. Um, which honestly, not a bad role. Um, I think the difficult thing was though that was my role, it was a very L&D focused role. Like how can we reimagine this work? My day-to-day -day was mostly shuttling around giving 101 workshops. Uh, so there was that big split between like, sometimes I'm feeling like I'm doing work that like redefines what diversity at Stanford could look like. And then I'm going to walk into a room and say like transgender people are people whose gender identity or gender expression doesn't match what they were assigned at birth. And then, you know, room full of cisgender heterosexual white people would be like, whoa, are you one of those transgenders? And I'd be like, I hate this. I absolutely hate this. Why am I here? Um, so that was, that was my day to day. <laughs> uh, and, but I, I, do you feel like you got, that was, and, and I don't want to make assumptions, but what were the good things that came out of working at Stanford? And like the name that the, the logo. So, so I went effects. to Stanford. Um, so I already had, you know, all the privilege that comes right. with Stanford degrees. Um, I think honestly, reputational boosts mm -hmm. was good. And I think, you know, given that Stanford, um, Stanford is Stanford. I got a lot of my first clients out of Stanford and that was really valuable to me once I went solo. Mm -hmm. Um, there were a bunch of other organizations within Stanford that liked what I had to say. And, you know, I, I would do my cookie cutter workshops, but I would rush them to get to the Q&A because people would like ask me interesting stuff. And then mm. I'd be like, great, this is my time to shine. So like 
Uh, one time someone got pissed because I spent like 20 minutes on a one hour workshop and like 40 minutes on the Q and A. Um, <laughs> I thought it was great. People got a lot out of it. Um, yeah. that was not what I was supposed to be doing, but yeah. Cause you um, got into the uncomfortable stuff probably. Right. Right. So, so people liked me and when I went solo, I kept in touch with folks and people gave me some of my first gigs as a solo consultant, which was enormously valuable for building my brand, building my reputation. Um, and again, all of that was privilege. If I didn't had access, if, if I didn't have access to Stanford, I wouldn't have gotten my foot in the door. Um, and then you know how it is doing solo promotional work. You have one client and then you say all of my clients, blah, blah, blah. And then you have two clients and you're just like every yep. single client, you know, so like once I had a couple, it was enough and I was able to get enough momentum to get started. That's so cool. And I, 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 I feel that. Um, and I think what is also really special, Lily, is that you have these really cool books. I, the Ethical Sellout, I loved. Um, and for someone who's coming from academia, it's easy to think that like this is going to be a very academic book, but I love the stories and they were so personal. And um, that's kind of what this podcast is about. It's it's less about um, like what is DEI, uh, how do we have more representation in tech. It's actually more about like the moments of choice and the really mm -hmm. hard part of equity. And what I like about the ethical sellout is it's so much less about like said white dude had to decide if he was going to hire a black person or a white person. Like that's that's a moment of choice. But for the people who are marginalized, like what are the choices that we have to make every day mm -hmm. um, in order to feel good about what we do, feel like we're staying loyal to our ancestors or whomever our loyalties are to, mm -hmm. um, but still feel good about. It. And I think what a lot of people, a lot of people in this practice struggle with is that like, I think some people are, I'd say the older folks who are in this practice are definitely more willing to do the one-on-one -on -one stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can talk about why you think that is. Um, I think that's because that's the only work that was accessible. Like the, the the only way you could make change at the time was doing, you know, extremely tedious one-on-one -on -one education. Um, and, you know, while I think that's really good, like let's, let's also keep in mind that that work's not for everyone and that the folks who are still doing that work today are the folks that didn't self-select out of doing that work because they got burned out by it, right? We still have those folks around today. Like we have plenty of younger folks that are willing to do one-on-one -on -one education. I think the difference isn't that there's a generational gap, hmm. but that rather there are more options nowadays hmm. and that people, people are able to select in and out of the work that they want to do. In the past, there was no such thing as systemic structural change work within corporations. Like, right. like you say that 30 years ago and people will like, you know, laugh you out of the room, right? Yeah. Like it was a, was a, oh, I'm so grateful to, you know, be in this company. And as the token blank person, I'm going to try to be strategic and find a way to A, keep my job and B, do what I can to make change from the inside. And that takes a specific kind of patience to do longer term one-on-one -on -one change work that, you know, over a long period of time works right? It just takes so much of you. And unfortunately, those who couldn't handle it or those that weren't willing to do that work either stopped doing that work and just tried to focus on their jobs to get stability and support their families or had to leave most corporate environments, right? Mm -hmm. There there wasn't a third option to do the sort of more radical structural change work. Yeah, And that's, I think, a luxury that we have 
in the current generation and the newer generation of folks doing DE&I work. But it's it's not just generational. I think it's because times themselves have changed and corporations have changed to some extent. Yeah. So speaking of change, uh, you mentioned earlier it's around how the different all the different places that people come from to get into this work. And um, you were we were talking just a second ago about the people who are willing to do the one-on-one stuff. In your practice, what are like the main flags that someone who's doing DEI work hasn't done DEI work? Hmm, the main flags. Um, so I do think that the lack of systems thinking is a big issue because if you're not thinking systemically, you're not able to relate what you're doing to what other people are doing. And that is a, a, a fatal flaw because it's a systems thinking framework that allows one-on-one -on -one change work and more structural work to coexist. If you don't have a systems framework, then, then you're going to think your approach is the only approach. You're not going to be open to other ways of doing change. You're not going to see how different tactics and different strategies connect with each other. It's going to be disjointed and patchwork. And we like, that's the case mm -hmm. in most organizations. Right, they 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 frame DEI around what feels good, what looks good, um, and you see this haphazard. We did this conversation here. We got this training there. I talked to that leader here. We sort of started a mentorship program. I would say we're doing pretty good. And like, if you look at it from a bird's eye view, you're like, literally, what the hell are you doing? Like, you're literally just throwing DEI things at the wall and seeing whatever sticks. And like, your employees are confused. And like none of this stuff has impacted them and your leaders are complacent because they've done four diversity things this year. How great. Um, uh, and your practitioners uh -huh. are burned out because they don't know why they're doing what they're doing, but they put 110% into each of these haphazard initiatives because they really hope that they work. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And um, you were we were talking a few months ago about how that's, and I've been using this term, how it's just entertaining. Mm -hmm. Like a part of the one-on-one -on -one stuff, there's a there's an element of entertainment that people want, and I think that's where it's like we just need to di something. Like you, we need to come you to come in and like make a splash. Right. One o one work is entertaining. One on one work, like interpersonal right. stuff, is usually not entertaining. That's like deeply exhausting, vulnerable no. stuff. But uh, yes, one o one work is so it's it's very geared towards the folks that can make people feel things and and have like a big transformative experience but like you don't do DEI by like giving everyone in the room like some transformative life experience like it's not a music festival right like like you go in there <laughs> it's not what? no way right um but yes um i i do think a lot of people are looking for 101 education that has extremely basic ideas, but somehow like changes hearts and minds. And if you're trying to change hearts and minds, the sort of formula in the field is like, you get some really bombastic emotional speaker, usually they're black or brown um, or indigenous. Uh, they come in, they give, they, they give a really, really sad life story about you know how horrible their life has been, how much discrimination they faced, um, they share some statistics about how horrible the industry is, and then they share something really uplifting about like, but one ally like stepped up and like saved me. And like my resume was in the mm -hmm. discard pile because I was getting discriminated against. But Shelly, this white woman like sent by God, like 
came down and picked up my resume and said, it looks black, but I will not discriminate today. <laughs> and like put it in the good folder, right? And then it's just like, I was saved that day that Shelly, you know, my savior, like decided to take a chance on me. And we should, that's why we should all be allies. So that when we see resumes that look bad, we can rest and say, no, they are in fact good and put them in the good folder. <laughs> I, hope, oh, I can't even take myself seriously. And I hope everyone in this room can be a Shelly tomorrow. Like, because, you know, you can personally like save the life of, of a struggling, you know, down on their luck woman of color, just like me. And, and like the white people like in the room, like are crying and they're like standing up, just like, I want to be a Shelly. I want to be a Shelly. Uh, there we go. So anyone listening, uh, you now have the exact formula to uh, earn $15,000 at whatever corporate conference you want. Have fun. Heard it here first. Taking <laughs> notes. Speaking of $15,000 equity things, there's one person who is not mm -hmm. a person of color who goes around Ooh. and does this work. Are we talking about Dr. D? <laughs> yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, not a fan. Not a fan. Mm -mm. So, so this is nothing personal. I actually really like the book. I think it's interesting. Um, uh -huh. I think there is a strategic mismatch between the way in which white uh -huh. fragility is written and the way in which uh, Dr. D goes about giving trainings or talks on the topic. Like, let's uh -huh. let's not mince words. The goal of white DEI practitioners who focus on race is to help white people get their shit together. Right. The goal of, of, from what I see, the goal of Dr. D's workshops are to give white people who already get it a chance to publicly self-flagellate in a way that look, that feels fun for the non-white people in the audience. It's very cathartic. Uh, like if you've ever watched a talk, like you basically watch. I've been. Oh I've yeah, been you've been in them, right? Cause, cause you brought her in, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so you get to see Dr. D go yeah. like, look, white people are absolute garbage trash. Cause we're white supremacists and we're all descended from white supremacists and our ancestors uh, literally enslaved your ancestors. Holy shit. I'm a bad person. And you know, what you do is you see a lot of white people in the audience and about half of them, I, I, I'm fudging the numbers. Let's say half of them say, oh my God, you're right. I'm a bad person. I'm descended from slave owners. Oh my God, what am I gonna do? Holy shit. And then you see the other half of them going like, why am I here? And I hate this. You're literally insulting me. Like, <laughs> fuck this. Like, fuck this DEI shit. Like, I'm not here for this. I'm not here to get insulted. And like, they'll get up and leave the room. And that's yeah. a problem because the only people who can reach white folks are white folks. So I take personal issue with white DEI practitioners whose entire praxis is alienating white folks that don't get DEI. Like, uh, who else is going to get these folks? Right. Right? Like, people of color cannot reach these yeah. folks. It is your job, white practitioners, to go to these folks and to do the work that literally people of color cannot do because it's unsafe for us. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I, I think the reason I'm conflicted is because her book and the concept she talks about are so 
it's a good important book. and so fundamental, I think, for people to understand it's a very how we book. got here and how white people got here. Yeah. And I can see what you're saying by like how how <laughs> they're all how else? Like it's either you go from one extreme to the other. Like she only has mm-hmm. an hour or two. Um, and so I can empathize with like why it's so hard. And I, I've been in a session, one was four hours and it was definitely what you just described. Um, and another one with just eight people. Um, and we did the same exact workshop, but the conversations were completely different only because with the eight people, we were allowed to like actually think about how right. this shows up and like how it manifests. But like, because she has become so popular, I'm sure she doesn't really have the bandwidth to like go around and do all the stuff that really mm-hmm. has an impact. It's more doing the show. So, um, which is a bummer because then people so don't really get speaker, the message. I think you have the responsibility to own whatever impact you have. And I don't right. think that time constraints are any sort of excuse for that. Like if, if I gave a talk that had mm. the reverse of the impact I was going to have, I will change my talk because that means it is not working, right? Like if you're not willing to change your talk to have the impact that you want out of your book or out of your workshops, then you just have to admit that you're in the talk for the money and you don't really care about the impact, which if she was to come out and say, like to some extent, I would respect that, but also like you can't be doing both, right? You can't be doing this double speak where you, you know, care very deeply about all this work and you have such an impact. And then you go around giving these talks that like, I've seen her talks backfire and increase polarization and increase the lack of buy-in from white folks. And I would say that is a net negative, especially if those white people are like executives, right? Like I, I would say better not, like better just not come if you're going to come here and like, shout at a bunch of executives as another white person and tell them that they're white supremacists. Like, sorry, like that, that doesn't create change. You know, like I'm I'm sure the people who get it, including white folks and people of color are going to feel really good about it, but like, they are not the folks that are empowered in this situation to make change. The folks that are empowered to make change are sitting Uh in the back of the Uh room, uh, getting angrier and angrier as you go on. And, you know, they're going to get up and leave when the next time one of us like well-intentioned advocates come in and says DEI, they're, they're going to be like, oh, you mean that lady that told me I was a piece of garbage for like two hours? I don't think so. And like, that's a problem. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm not, I'm not conflicted anymore. <laughs> well, so, so, um, you know, I, I do but, think that, you know, I'm, I'm not in the practice of canceling people. I think she does good work. But I do think, again, as a speaker, you need to be very, very, very mindful about your impact. And I think she could be more mindful about her impact because popularity isn't a free pass to suddenly stop caring about the effects of your work. And, you know, this is a problem that I think every major speaker has. For sure, because you, the ones, the, the trick you have, people are paying for. So it's like, I can't change it now because that's what they want. But you can. But I'm sure if I were to, (laughs) you're right. You're right. Um, Yeah. I I see it's, it's complicated as we know. And speaking of nuances, things that are complicated, I do want to talk about your book now Um, and what it was like for you to write that book. It was your second book. Did you do things differently than the first one? And um, like, I'm curious to know how you met those people, how you got them involved, and then what the process was like 
Um, sure, sure. So um, let me just preface this by saying my first book is not how I would write a book. Um, Gender Ambiguity was adapted uh, from a dissertation that uh, of a project that I was the head research assistant in. So it was already written. It was a uh -huh. dissertation. And I, along with my co-author, mostly me though, uh, went in and basically rewrote the entire dissertation to be more accessible as a general audience book. I will level with you. It is still mm. not accessible. Like if the dissertation was like, you know, 10 out of 100 accessible, I brought it up to like a 55 out of 100 accessible. It's not accessible. It's really hard to read. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, in that respect, I could have done better if I had gone at it now, I would have rewritten the entire damn thing and like started from scratch. Um, so luckily yeah. getting, getting to write a new book with uh, the ethical sellout was really fun because I didn't have a dissertation to revise this time. I just could write whatever was on my mind. Um, and that was a fun process. I think it was challenging to get the stories, especially because people don't want to respond to an inquiry on Craigslist that says, do you identify as a sellout? Because um, no, like literally no one responded to that. Um, so we had to, to reframe things and to get creative. We had to ask questions like, tell us about a time when you made a big moral compromise in your life. And we got a lot more hits for that. Mm. And so we did all sorts of things. We did um, snowball sampling. We talked to the folks in our life and talked to the folks in our life to recommend other folks in their lives. Um, we looked on Craigslist. We posted things on um, LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, I ran a couple ads. Um, and we got a pretty wide range of people from around the world, which I think was pretty interesting. I wish we had more. Like, I, I honestly say I wish we had more, but people are so reluctant to talk about this sort of thing, even anonymously. Huh. Like we, we got, you hmm. know, a bunch of our survey results were basically like, uh, no, I'm not answering this question because if it gets back, then like I'm really? losing everything, right? Like yeah. no way I'm going to write something uh -huh. like this in my book. And so that informed a lot of what we were writing about because it seemed like everyone had these stories, but people were so terrified to share them. Like, like even our close friends. Huh were terrified to share them. And they were just like, you're sure I'm going to be anonymous. You're sure I'm going to be anonymous. And like, let me review everything you write to make sure it's anonymous. Because if this gets out, like I'm done as an activist uh. or like I'm done as a member of my community, like I'm going to be eaten alive, um, which was really sobering, right? To, to write a book. Yeah. And what do you think, what do you, what do you think that says about where people are Our and how communities much are not there still? or, or is that what you were is that what you were assuming would you would find? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we write about this in chapter one. We were assuming to find a bunch of people that were like super chill with having sold out and like who, who could talk to us about it. Like mm -hmm. a bunch of rich people who were just like, oh yeah, yeah, I had values once. But then I was like, man, money. And then I like set my values on fire and I'm so happy because money. So that happened or rather that didn't happen um because when we talked to rich people we had people saying like i don't understand like i'm i didn't sell out uh, what do you mean moral values that i compromised i i don't know i i guess you know my values are to do well by myself and i don't think i compromised anything and that's like all we heard from them right so the people that talked most about compromise were marginalized folks and people that felt strongly about social causes that were then reckoning 
with some difference to their life that they could not have expected that conflicted with their values. And so this went very quickly from a, from a book exploring like how and why people sell out to holy shit. Like, it seems like only people that like care about the world think about themselves as sellouts. Why, why, why are marginalized people forced with this additional burden to try to survive? Why are our communities so toxic to ourselves? And like, why does everyone talk about this intense pressure to not sell out or to be canceled, you know, by your community? Um, what's going on? And that's what the book ended up turning into. And I think it, it's, it's a good start, but like, wow, there's so much to, to write on this topic. Um, there's, there's another book called, um, oh, I'm forgetting the title. I want to say it's Against Purity, um, but it's, it's, it's a book about purity politics, essentially. And I think it's a really, really good reference um, for an additional deep dive. Um, I'm also reading a book now, I, I picked it up recently, called, um, what is it? We, we Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, really, really good book, phenomenal book. I'm just a few pages in, but I'm really enjoying it. And I think all of these books are getting around this core idea of like, how can we make our communities and movements better spaces to hold complexity and to hold the fact that like, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fuck up and we're, we're not always perfect people. So how can we square that and be imperfect people trying to create a better world? Yeah. And I think that's why I enjoyed it so much uh, because I resonated, it resonated with me so deeply, especially being like a head of DNI at a tech corporate company. Like you're doing that, you're selling out yep. every single day, I feel like. And it was, it got to be so physically painful um, mm -hmm. and really, really tiring. And I think at least this year, what has changed is like, really think about, okay, what, what did that feel like mm -hmm. for me? Will I do that again? Um, and at what point, it, or if, is there ever a point at which I'm willing to compromise a little mm -hmm. bit, um, so that I can get a point across? And and for me, it's more like what, how, how do I compromise my own teaching? I suppose uh, methods that you understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying in a way that doesn't make me feel right. Like dipshit. Right. I, I I have that question all the time. Like, especially because I think one of the necessary evils in this field is you have to code switch, right? Which is something that I talk about yes. a lot in the book. We, we were just talking about that with like Robin D'Angelo, right? Like you have mm -hmm. to code switch to do this work effectively because different audiences need different things. And if you try to treat all audiences like they're the same, then you won't create impact. And so... I could approach every yeah. single consulting engagement like I approached the folks who didn't get it when I was a grassroots organizer. And I will tell you, I will have no business if I do mm. that. Also, I probably won't make an impact. I'll feel mm. really good about myself though. Like I, one thing I miss, one, one yeah. thing I missed, let me say this, uh, I miss just going off on people. Like I miss like tearing people to shreds and being mm. like, bam, like white supremacist garbage. I can't believe you're so full of shit and your organization is fascist. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, because A, that doesn't work. Uh, B, it's not really my brand anymore, but like sometimes I want to take it back out. Um, and like C, like I think most importantly, like it, it doesn't do anything. Right. Like I don't actually change yeah. white supremacist fascist organizations by like, I don't know, screaming at their CEO for being a white supremacist fascist. I'll probably get myself, you know, fired. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> you know, end my contract here and there. But I think that that question remains like, what do you do in those situations, right? Especially if you care so much about these things. Yeah. 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 And I think um, where, I guess, okay. So the, where, the one thing I want to cover is now that there's so much about race, people wanting to come in mm-hmm. and talk about anti-racism, um, about anti-blackness, and they're bringing Lily Zhang in instead of, say, uh, Willie mm-hmm. Brown, for example. Not yeah, Willie, Willie Brown. Brown's pretty cool. Yeah, Willie Brown. Yeah. Um, or like mm-hmm. a woman, a black woman. Um, do what are the ways? And I ask everyone this: What are the ways in which you feel you acknowledge your privilege and use it both to get your message across in ways that others can't? But also, like, where do you feel the conflict of like, why didn't you mm-hmm. hire so and so for this, or right. or any any of that? So stuff? this is this is a question that I ask always at the beginning of every conversation with a prospective client, which is, why am I the person mm-hmm. that's the right fit for this? And if they can't answer right. that question on principle, I don't take the thing. I just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And so. What like what are the what's the answer you get? You're so saying, if I'm being real with you, the answer I get is I don't know. We saw your name on LinkedIn. You seem cool, which is not good enough for me, right? So especially no. given the question you asked, it's a question of like alternatives, right? Like, look, there's a trillion anti-racist folks out there, and there's probably a solid couple hundred that are really good at their craft. Why me, right? And the only answer mm-hmm. I'm willing to accept is there's a specific approach that you have to this work that is strategic and that will achieve the impact to this audience that other practitioners will not have. That is the only appropriate uh-huh. answer. There's actually no other answer. Because if there is no other answer, then I'll say, great, it sounds like you're looking for an interchangeable anti-racist speaker. Let me recommend you to some that will probably have a bigger impact than me on behalf of either the way they do their work or to be real, uh, their identity, right? Because if the impact you're trying yeah. to have, like at a very basic level, most anti-racist speakers, um, most companies try to bring these speakers in to speak to their black and brown employees. Basic, right? If the impact you're trying to have is you want your black and brown employees to feel good, I am not the best pick because your black and brown employees will not identify as much with an East Asian, albeit you know, queer trans femme speaker. That's just the truth. Right now, if you're trying to bring me in specifically to talk about anti-racist strategy, DEI strategy, specific things that I've written about, things that you know that I'm going to do well at, if your audience has expressed an interest in hearing those things in a way that you think I'm a good fit for, I have no moral dilemma around that. Right? If you know that I'm the best speaker, I will take it. Right? Like maybe the other anti-racist speakers that I can think about are not the best fits for that. Not because they don't have the right identities, but because that approach isn't what you're looking for. Right? It's, it's very straightforward for me. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's when they don't have a strategic understanding of what role the speaker is going to play when I start to, when, when the red flags start coming up. And I say, look, if you're just looking for a speaker, like generic speaker, it doesn't have to be me. I don't need the money that badly. Like bring in someone that's actually going to do a good job. Bring in a black speaker if you're talking about black issues. Like I can talk about racial issues for every race. That's what I'm trained to do. But like, do you really want me to do that? Like you really think that's going to work? Uh, and then oftentimes clients say like, oh, I didn't know yeah. that there were other people. And I'm just like, Jesus, do some homework, please. <laughs>
you, it sounds like you're basically you looking to say like you strategically chose me because maybe because I'm not black and maybe I will get the the message across to the people who are not black in your in your organization. Possibly, yeah, and and sometimes so sometimes um, specifically with regards to anti-racist strategy, right? I think there there are a huge range of anti-racist speakers. Right? There are some that speak to anti-racist praxis. There are some that do anti-racism 101. There are some that speak to the emotional aspect of anti-racism. There are some that speak to grassroots organizing and, and the anti-racist you know, work that needs to happen. There are also some folks that speak to the identities involved in anti-racist activism. I'm going to be straight with you. I'd, like, I am Chinese American. I am not intimately connected with specifically Chinese American anti-racist mm. organizing efforts, right? That's that's not my specialty. If you wanted that, I can actually recommend you to some folks that are good at that. But I think, again, this goes back to the idea that every speaker needs to serve a purpose. And every speaker needs to have an impact. And when you consider the right speaker for the role, you need to consider what they have to say, the way they say it, the the reach that they have to different groups, their identities, but there are several things uh -huh. that you have to weigh. And then you end up deciding who the best speaker is on the basis of all of those things. I don't think we should be uh, picking speakers solely on the basis of identity. That's how you get folks that look like yes. you, but don't speak for you, right? Uh -huh. that's, that's a huge problem. Um, I also don't think we should be picking speakers solely on the basis of what they have to say, because that's how you get white people trying to speak on you know non-white issues uh -huh. that make a fool of themselves. Right? It's some balance of all of these things. I don't have a clear-cut formula to choose whether you should be picking me or not, but I ask folks to go through these questions in their head, and I give them some alternatives just so that they have other things on the table and so they can be clear you know, what, like, who they want to bring in. Because the end goal for me as a speaker isn't right. getting more business, though more business is good. It's finding the right person to solve the organization's yeah. problems. And that, and recognizing that the person is often not me. Sometimes, like sometimes it is. In which case, I'm gonna go in there and get paid and yeah. do a great job. And sometimes it's not me, and that means I need to recognize that. And if I still try to go in there and get paid, I'm compromising something important, and I'm possibly having a negative impact. Yeah, through doing and so. I think that if you're listening, that is so important. And I think you wrote a LinkedIn post a while back around. Like if you are, we are not all the same. We don't all do the same thing. Just because we're in DEI work doesn't mean that we all do this set of curriculum or we all can change everything you think mm -hmm. is wrong. And I think part of the issue with that is that when companies reach out to people like you and me, they're like, we need, we need a talk. It's like that. First of all, you don't know what you need. Right. Companies think right. we're interchangeable. Um, and we're I think absolutely that's, not. that's part of it, but also for someone like me who was uh, head of D&I and kind of had my hands in everything. When I first started out, I was like, yeah, I could probably do that. I know there's, I know there's someone who's like probably better at this than me, but I can at least get you started and then like get you to that person. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm like, I don't have time for that because I end up getting annoyed. Like half contract is like, this is just not my specialty and I don't want to be doing this. Um, and right. I, I always see it like it's both the practitioner and in the company. Um, but tell me more about like getting in, if you want to be a, a, we'll say equity practitioner, like what are the things that you should ask yourself or what are the things that you should really sort out before you just start spraying all over and taking whatever business comes at you? Hmm. What is my niche? 
It's the most important question. What is my niche? What am I here to do? What is it that I can do that no one else can do? If the answer is nothing, <laughs> then I will uh, controversially say, go back and learn some more before you go back into this space, right? Because if there is nothing that sets you apart, okay, I guess you could work for like a large DE&I firm and like crunch some numbers. If, if you want to do that, go for it. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a name for yourself, you need to have something to make a name for yourself by. And you need to have right. a reason to pick you over other practitioners that doesn't just involve you having the right connections, right? You need to have something that sets you apart, whether that's your approach, your style, your subject matter expertise, your, your relationship to a specific industry, your experience, your education, doesn't matter, right? There's something that you can do really, 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 really well that no one else can do, right? It's your job to figure out what that yeah. is and hone in on that and then get gigs around that. Like the, the end goal of this work is not for you to have all of the work. It's for other practitioners in the space when they think about a very specific thing to think immediately about you, right? Oh man, like this firm really wants some help doing a DE&I like specific anti-racist education within China in a marketing context. Bam, this person. I know this person. They do this really, really well. There's no question in my head. They're the, mm -hmm. they're the first person I'm going to think of, right? And if you can't, like, you don't have to get that that specific. But if you can't find yourself a niche, then you're going to have this problem where every gig you take is potentially taking work away from someone that is much better situated to do yeah. that work than and you. And it, it is just, like, really painful to be doing the work that you don't like doing accidentally. Right. And, and you might not even like doing the work or know how to do the work. And I know in the DE&I space, like every, you know, self-employed space, you fake it till you make it. But I think given this field, like you also have to consider the impact right. while you are quote unquote faking it. Um, <laughs> and sometimes that impact is more negative than the positive impact yeah, of you so, coming so, in. So, so true. And I've, I've definitely experienced that. We're almost running out of time, but I still, I, I want to ask you the follow-up question. What is your niche? What should people know about what it is that you what do? What is my niche? Yeah, um, I do DE&I strategy work. I talk to leaders. I talk specifically to leaders within organizations that are well-intentioned but don't get it yet. Um, and I approach DE&I from a no-nonsense, I'll, 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 I'll tell it how it is, um, strategic approach that will kick your ass, but also teach you why the problems are occurring to be real with you and talk about the organization, right? I, I don't blame individual leaders for the entire organization. I talk about process. I talk mm -hmm. about systems. I talk about structure. Um, and I figure out how to fix all of those things. Don't bring me in for like training at scale. I will absolutely never train like a thousand people. I hate that stuff. It makes <laughs> one die. Uh, don't bring me in to change hearts and minds. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to, you know, fix shit. If people don't want their right. shit fixed, call <laughs> someone else. Um, yeah, and that's that's, that's oh, I where I would put myself. Uh, last question I have uh, before I ask the last questions. Um, you've done a lot, you've done a lot of speaking, and I feel like um, yeah, your opinion matters, and people want to hear what you have to say. What are in what way have the questions changed, either for the better or worse, in the places where you're talking publicly? Hmm. hmm. So I've seen a lot of uh, movement towards harder questions, mm. which I think is really good. So instead of just like, how do you be a good ally, which is possibly my least favorite question in the world, it's 
I'm in this specific situation with a specific manager that's said the specific thing that's like really shitting on me and I feel horrible. Uh. What do I do? Which honestly, as a consultant, my favorite kinds of questions. Um, I know practitioners that hate those questions because they're too specialized and, you know, practitioners, uh, not every practitioner does that sort of very custom work. That's also my niche. I do custom work. Um, so I love those questions. I've been getting a lot of them. I'm also biased because maybe quite like people are spent are directing these questions directly at me because I know that that's my specialty, but I've been seeing a lot more of that and less generic, like 101 questions, which yeah. I think is a really yeah, yeah. positive, good thing. Um, so what? what are some things that you wish you could talk about more in these open forums or like on a podcast like this? I feel like we've already talked about the hard stuff. Like I love talking about the complexities of the industry. I love talking about like the daily compromises you need to do this work. Like it's tough. Like it's really, really hard. I love talking about the split between like folks who work, you know, inside big companies and like practitioners and third party folks. Like there is such a conversation to be had on navigating the relationship between like a head of DEI and an external consultant. Like all of that is code switching and tactics and strategy, right? There's always a limit to which internal folks can push. There's always a role that external folks can play, even if it's just saying the exact same things as the external right. folks more aggressively. Like I, I, I wish we could have an entire conversation about like the tactics involved in navigating those relationships because it's so common. And it's like a 301 topic. Like people don't even conceptualize yeah. that being a challenge. And it's definitely a daily struggle doing this work, especially given the complete lack of resources and material out there detailing how to do it. Like, I don't know, yeah. like maybe we should talk about that. Maybe we should write those resources because yeah. it's very common. It's, it's, it's really, just really so true. Challenge. And knowing that um, the people who typically reach out to us are in HR and like they tell us, they tell me everything. But like, do they have, do they have the purse mm -hmm. power to make that stuff work? And I think oftentimes they reach out to me personally, not knowing that that's what they have to do. Like we, they can't hire us mm -hmm. to just come in and, and fix everything yeah. themselves. Like they're going to have to do a lot of work too. And also like sell the value of what yep. we do over and over again. And I learned a lot from working with you initially of like, okay, I know that my job is to politic, but I need someone to A, like create this for me because I don't have time and B, do it with much more subject mm -hmm. matter expertise than I do. Um, and that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of your job as a CDO. You try to get budget for things, then try to get influence to have them signed off and then hire the right people to execute. And I don't, I think that's mm -hmm. not what people get to do a lot of times because they're too busy writing yeah. why the CEO effed up. I want to hear you talk about that I'm sometime more than happy on a to. podcast. More than happy. <laughs> if you look at that, you run your own podcast. We should talk about that. I will. Lily, this has been such a pleasure. And I feel like we have so much more to talk about just in general. Um, I always love love bouncing ideas off of you, especially with, with Dr. D. I've been talking to everyone about her and I'm like, I still don't know. I still don't know. Yeah, you know, I I um I kind of forgot at some point that this was a podcast <laughs> and recorded, so I probably said some things that'll get me in trouble. So for the people listening, um, I'm really sorry, but also you heard it from me first. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take responsibility for whatever impact that has. I, I knew that we were recording a podcast, so you good. Thank you so much. Before we go, where can people find you? 
Oh, yes. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Lily Zhang, 308. Uh, Zhang is spelled Z-H-E-N-G. There are no A's in that last name. Um, you can also find me at lilyzhang.co for my website. And uh, yeah, that'll that'll do it. And, you know, please support me by buying the ethical sellout. Um, please buy the ethical buy sellout. that on Barrett Kohler's website, uh, B-E-R-R-E-T-T dash K-O-E-H-L-E-R. Um, you could also buy it on Amazon, but then you'd be a sellout and that would suck. So try to bear it, uh, try to buy it from Barrett Kohler. And there's an audio version, which I listened to. And there's an audio version. And there's also a 40% sale happening from uh, between now and Tuesday, uh, December 15th. So depending on when this podcast comes out, you might be able to get in on that. Either way, they should buy it anyway. Books are not that expensive. Buy it. It's good. It's not that expensive. My first book was like 40 bucks. This one's not 40 bucks. This one's like 15. So you're good. I don't know because I got one free from you. This is but true. But then you know what? I also bought the audio version. Anyway, I feel so supported. <laughs> I love you. I love hanging out with you. Thank you for all that you do, Lily. Your persistence, your resilience, and I will see you out there. Likewise. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.